Good morning, everyone. Let me greet all of you a blessed Chinese New Year and trust that with the Lord on your side, you will have a great reunion with family and friends as well. So grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Stay home if you are feeling unwell. Ensure that you are fully vaccinated. Do not cross zones. Do not intermingle. Keep to groups of five. Keep your mask on at all times. Maintain safe distancing. Do not loiter in confined, crowded places. Leave the premises as soon as you can. You know, we have become familiar with such restrictions over the past two years. Such restrictions have somehow or other become a way of life. You may ask, why are they needed? We know that evidence shows that they are effective in pandemic situations, that they break the chain of transmission, that they offer a measure of protection for the community, that they work when implemented broadly and widely and everyone doing their part. Here's my question for this morning. What then is effective when the contagion is not a virus, but sin and evil? Let me repeat that question again. What is effective when the contagion is not a virus, but sin and evil? The first four chapters of the book of Numbers showcase the community of Israel just before their departure from Mount Sinai. Preparations must be made. The numbering of the warriors, chapter 1. The organization of the camp around the tabernacle, chapter 2. The assignment of roles and responsibilities to the priests and Levites for guarding and transporting of the tabernacle, chapters 3 and 4. Now, looking at the Israeli encampment, all of us know this from the past sermon by Pastor Jonathan, at the center is the tabernacle, the dwelling of the, com of the commander-in-chief of Israel's army, the Lord God himself. Arrayed around it are the twelve tribes, with three tribes on each side, forming the protective perimeter between the main camp and the central holy place are Moses, the priests, and Levites. This formation clearly speaks of order and harmony. Everything is in the right place. Everyone knows their assigned duties. Everyone is aware of the marching order. The concluding verse of the first four chapters presents an extremely bright picture. For example, Chapter 1, the last verse, verse 54, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 2, the last verse, verse 34, thus did the people of Israel according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. 
Chapter 3 as well, the last verse, verse 51, And Moses gave according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Chapter 4 even, verse 49, Thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. God spoke. Moses listened. He gave ear to God's commandments. The people did what was right in God's eyes. They kept what the Lord commanded Moses. How can this favorable state of affairs be maintained? How can this state of affairs continue on throughout their journey in the wilderness into the promised land? How can Israel keep disorder and disharmony at bay? How can they avoid profaning God's sacred space? Now, I mentioned this earlier in my first sermon. The book of Numbers recognizes two main ways in which holiness, order, and harmony are violated. Firstly, disobedience violates God's holiness. And secondly, defilement also violates God's sacred space. Now, disobedience and defilement mustn't be allowed to run unchecked in a community lest they become a problem of pandemic proportions. How can Israel protect the community from such contamination? That's the question today. How can God's people keep the contagion of disobedience and defilement at bay? So we come to chapter 5. And, and God gave the instructions and listened to the instruction carefully. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 5. I'll read the first four verses, 1 to 4. Notice how it starts again. The Lord spoke. This is not Israel's idea. This is not even the priest's idea. This is not Moses' idea. Hear carefully again. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 2, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall, you shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. You know, just as our government put restrictions in place to halt the spread of the COVID virus, so the Lord himself also put restrictions in place to protect his people. You know, whenever you pick up the Bible and you come to another restriction, another you shall or you shall not, you know, a lot of times we mistakenly assume that God is cramping our style. God is making things difficult for us. Now, today when we do all this, all this restriction, putting on our masks, washing our hands, ensuring that our family members are vaccinated, etc., etc. 
Why do we do them? To make life difficult for them? No, we do it to protect them. That is what we should understand whenever we come across restrictions. Whenever God commands us, He meant it for our good to protect us. So the Lord put restrictions in place to protect His people. Firstly, God's people must practice remover. Now, three categories of defilement are mentioned here. Skin diseases of various kinds, bodily discharges from sexual organs, contamination from contact with dead bodies. Verse 3 says this, You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. This is effectively a quarantine order. The Lord practiced this long before we even practiced this. This is effectively a quarantine order. Put them out. Outside the camp. Don't mix them around with the rest of the other people. Put them out. Remove the unclean. Isolate the contaminated. Put them outside the camp to prevent further transmission of their uncleanness among the people of Israel in which I dwell. Leviticus says this, chapter 15, verse 31. Thus, you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. We need to understand this. Unclean people is a danger to the entire community. They put the entire community in jeopardy of losing their lives. They make the entire community unfit for the dwelling of God. Unless we remove the unclean from among us, God will remove us. The, Israeli, the Israelite encampment foreshadows the eventual reality. That is what God is preparing for. This is what eventual reality will look like. Revelation chapter 21. Similar words, language. Verse 3, verse 4. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. And verse 4. And death shall be no more. No more contaminating influence of death anymore. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. What is it here? The dwelling place of God, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Nothing unclean will enter it. So what God is doing in the encampment of Israel, God is saying in the future, the eventual reality, exactly the same thing is happening. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 15. Outside. Outside. Outside of the camp, outside of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, the church 
the church today must also anticipate the same reality. The church, therefore, must also exercise a similar removal protocol. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul picked up the Old Testament teaching to the Corinthian church. This is what he said, chapter 6, 16 and 17, God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. Here's Paul's advice now, or his exhortation to the church. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate. Sorry, this is from the Lord. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is from Paul. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. The church must now uphold the moral side of such regulations. What happened to Israel is in preparation for the actual fulfillment, the real meaning behind all these things. Because it is not lepers that make us unclean. It is not bodily discharges that make us unclean. It is not touching the dead that make us unclean. Jesus himself touched and healed lepers. Jesus himself cured the woman with a discharge of blood when she touched him. She di he didn't go, don't touch me. Jesus raised the dead by touch. Defilement today is no longer physical, but moral. That is why Jesus in his teaching in, in Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 15, verse 18 to 20, this is what our Lord Jesus now says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Of course, I can add to the list. Anger, jealousy, envy, deceit, orgies, drunkenness, on and on and on. These are what defile a person. Remove these things from among us. Put them out of your heart. If you are harboring such sins in your heart, you are already defiled. Don't expect God to dwell in your midst. He will not. He's a holy God. Unless you put them away from you, put them out of your heart. If you continue to refuse to do this, God may act against you. Instead of fighting for you, he might be fighting against you repeatedly. So have nothing to do with such things. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2 and verse 13 says this, Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, this is a person who after you come to the person and say, 
don't do this. And the person says, I don't care, I'm continuing to do this. You warn him, her, again and again, they refuse to repent, put them out. Bad company corrupts good morals. Expel the wicked person from among you, God says. Put him out of your fellowship. Maintain proper safe distancing from him. God's people must practice removal. Let me pause here a moment. Do you know what is in your heart right this very moment? What are you harboring inside here that is hidden from the eyes of everyone, but you know? You know it's evil. You know it's sin. Because the Bible has spoken very clearly about it. Can I encourage you, by the grace and mercy of God, in light of the many songs we sung this morning, put them away have nothing to do with them anymore. Let me go on. Numbers chapter 5, verse 5 to 10. Once again, look at how it starts. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 6, speak to the people of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the realm of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Secondly, God's people must practice reparation or restitution, if you want, or repayment. You can use those words. Now, two parties are involved here. The sinner and the one sinned against. The actual offence is described in Leviticus chapter 6. Let me bring that up. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2 to 3. This will give us a better understanding and context for why, what God says in uh, Numbers chapter 5, verse 5 to 10. Leviticus chapter 6, verse 2 and 3 and then verse 5. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor and, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, verse 5, he shall restore it in full and add and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. Here, a person has defrauded his neighbor. He initially denied it, even under oath. Later, however, he acknowledges his guilt. 
he confesses and makes reparation, adding to it a 20% penalty. Number adds to the legislation in Leviticus. Numbers goes on to say this, what is to be done if the defrauded person is dead? Am I released? No need to pay anymore because the person is no longer alive. He's dead already. No need to pay. No. Hear what Numbers says. Reparation must still be made. It goes either to the next of kin or to, the, or to God for the priest. The guilty party is not released without first making restitution. The guilty party, the guilty party must always repay, not only in full, but in addition to it, 20% more. Verse 6, or even the passage in Leviticus chapter 6, further heightens the offence. Here's how, how it is described, uh, Numbers chapter 5, verse 6. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord. Sins committed against another person are sins committed against the Lord. Now, I want to pause here. This one must sing in. Let me say again. Let it sing in. Sins committed against another person are sins committed against the Lord himself. Did not David in Psalm 51 pray this? Against you, you only have I sinned. You know what David wrote that Psalm for? Because of his sin? Against Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. But hear what David say, Against you, you only have I sinned. You know, you know why is it so serious when you sin against a brother or sister? You're sinning against the Lord. It must be atoned for. It is serious. In addition to the monetary reparation, the sinner must also offer the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. Notice, Here's the important point here. Notice that the repayment is much more than the defrauded amount. It's not like I steal $10, I give back $10, law, fair what? No. You steal, 10, you steal $10, you give back 20% more, you give back in full, add 20% to it, and then bring a ram of Toman. What do we really owe God when we defraud God? Have you ever wondered that? What do we really owe God when we defraud God, when we sin against Him? I like what the psalmist says here in, in Psalm 49, verses 7 to 9. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. When you defraud God, your life is forfeited. And when you try to repay unto the Lord, no payment is ever enough. That is what the, God is teaching His people Israel when He gives instructions like this. When we defraud God, no ransom is ever enough. No payment is ever sufficient. Our life is rightfully forfeited. But thanks be to God, as we have sung again and again this morning, we have a Kingsman Redeemer. First John. Chapter 2, 
verse 1 and 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Again, do a self-test. You all do a lot of self-ART, right? You all need to do this test as well. Do a self-test. Examine your heart. Have you broken faith with God? Have you, in sinning against a brother or sister, sinned against God? If you have, if the Lord right this very moment brings something to mind, confess right now your sins. Don't wait. Confess. Christ is our advocate and atoning sacrifice. God will forgive your debts in Christ. He will cleanse you from the contagion of sin and evil. He will purify you from all unrighteousness. Make your peace with God. But don't forget, when you do so with God first, make your peace also with one another, especially when you sin against a brother and sister. Matthew again, chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, perhaps even the gift of confession, the gift of repentance. You are offering this to the Lord. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Make the necessary restitutions in order to keep sin and contagion away from us. To God by repentance, to one another by reconciliation. God's people must practice reparation. Let me go on. Numbers chapter 5 now. So we have two ways ready. How we can keep the contagion of disobedience and defilement at bay by removal and by reparation. In terms of reparation, repentance and reconciliation. Numbers chapter 5, verse 11. I'll read to you verse 14. Once again, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected, though she has defiled herself and there is no weakness against her since she was not taken in the act. And if the spirit of jealousy comes over him, the husband, and he is jealous of his, of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, Thirdly, God's people must practice ritual fidelity. Now, there's no proof that a woman has committed adultery. No proof. No one has seen. The husband merely suspects. The woman may have sinned in secret, or she may be completely innocent. So God commands a trial by ordeal. The trial by ordeal is described further on in verses 15 to 28. 
15 to 28 describe an elaborate ritual. Now, instead of reading those, those verses, let me summarize it here for you. You can, you can take a look up there. Okay, let me summarize it for you so it make it easier for you all to understand. Let me summarize. Suspicious husband brings wife to priest. Priest takes woman into the court of the tabernacle and presents her to the Lord. Priest adds dust from the tabernacle floor. It's a holy tabernacle, huh? to the holy water. The water is likely the water taken from the bronze lever before the tent of meeting. Priest unbinds woman's hair and places grain offering in her, hair, in her hand. Priest puts woman under oath and she assents to it. That means she says amen to it. Priest writes the curses and wash them off into the water. Priest takes grain offering from her hand, waves it and burns part of it on the altar. Woman drinks the water. Water affects woman only if she is guilty. Now, the interpretation of the various details in this ritual is uncertain. I have found so many different views. What actually does it mean? But the overall trust, this is what I want to focus on, the overall trust is clear. Rituals play a major role in the Bible. You'll see many of them in the book of Numbers. They usually accompany life-defining moments. They embody the fundamental values of a society. You go to any society, you study their rituals, you'll know what is important to them. Their graphic and dramatic enactments reveal what is vital to a particular community. Now, the elaborate ritual in Numbers 5 communicates to Israel that marital fidelity is foundational to their well-being. The elaborate ritual in Numbers 5 communicates to Israel that marital fidelity is foundational to their well-being. You know, I'm a licensed solemnizer. Hi, Jeremy. Because I just solemnized most recently Jeremy and Rachel's uh, wedding and I'm so happy to see them here today as well. Now, Jeremy and Rachel will be familiar with this. Associated with the solemnization process is a ritual. I put this ritual in place. Name invocation, charge to the man and woman, declaration of intent to marry, the marriage vows or the marriage oath, exchange of rings, declaration of marriage, blessing of the marriage, signing of the marriage certificate, and then a benediction. Notice in the midst of it is the oath or marriage vows. They are solemn pledges of faithfulness to one another in the presence of God. They are not mere words. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 2 says this Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Verse 4 and 5, when you vow a vow to God, 
do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. The oath uttered by the suspected woman in Numbers chapter 5. The oath uttered by the man and woman at their wedding is binding. Both underlines the importance God attaches to the ritual of marriage. Why is it so important? Ephesians chapter 5. Many of you use this verse in your marriages. I remember this over the years. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Hear this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. There is more to the ritual in Numbers 5 than what meets the eye. On one level, it's about the man and his wife, but on a deeper level, it is really about God and His people. Even as a man requires his wife to be faithful to him, God expects the same from His people. I'm your husband, God says to the church. You are my wife. So right at the end of Numbers chapter 5, verse 29 to 31, let me just read that. This is the law in cases of jealousy. When a wife, though under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he is jealous of his wife, then he shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall carry out for her all this law. The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. The church is under God's authority. The church ought not to go astray and defile herself. Our God is a jealous God. God demands ritual fidelity. I'm talking about marriage here as a ritual, but there's also something called the Lord's Supper. There's also something called baptism. Things that the church practice ritualistic again and again. Important. Don't play, play. Christian marriage is meant to showcase the relationship between God and His people. It serves as an accurate barometer of our walk with God. Poor marriage, poor walk. That is what God really is saying to His people Israel when He defined the elaborate ritual. If your marriage is poor, don't expect your walk with me to be good. How can God's people keep the contagion of disobedience and defilement at bay? Let me summarize. Firstly, by practicing removal. Put away everything or everyone that defiles body and spirit. Have nothing to do with them. Secondly, by practicing reparation. Maintain right relationships at all costs with God by repentance, with one another by reconciliation. Thirdly, by practicing ritual fidelity. Uphold the marriage covenant. It is holy unto God. Don't break your vows lest God breaks you. 
Restrictions like this are necessary because sin and evil are dangerously contagious. We practice removal, reparation, and ritual fidelity not just for the benefit of the church, but also for the wider community. You know, the encampment, this is how I see the encampment today. This is how I see the encampment of the Church of Jesus Christ today. And this is how it looks in relation to GFC. We are now the temple of God. God now dwells with us and in us. We are now the nation of priests. We are now the protective cordon between God and the sinful world. We must therefore uphold the purity and sanctity of the church for the sake of the world so that we can draw them into the church to Jesus Christ so that they may see the light of Jesus in us for the world needs Jesus. This is how our encampment looks like today. See where the church is. The tabernacle of God has now expanded to include the church because we are now within the inner veil where God dwells. And the Holy Spirit is now in you. Be very careful. Be very careful. But yet at the same time, rejoice. Because in Christ, we have an advocate. In Him, He's our atoning sacrifice. He can purify you and cleanse you from every unrighteousness. So humble yourself. Go to Him. Confess your sin. Remove from your heart all that is defiling. And for those of you who are married, you know what to do. Be faithful to one another. For those who are, who are preparing for marriage, realize the importance of the ritual you are about to enter into. Because God uses marriage, your life together, to reflect to the watching world. This is how God treats His people. The way you treat your husband, the way your husband treats you, is the way God treats His people. So you become the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. Lord, when you read about all this instruction that Israel must perform in order to keep themselves clean, we thank you, O Lord, that today you have given us a sacrifice that is far better, our Lord Jesus Christ himself, our atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away every sin, even the sins of the world. So Lord, as we come before you, will your Spirit so convict us that we will drive away from our very persons all that is sinful and evil. And help us, O oh Lord, when we catch ourselves doing sin and evil, to repay by repentance. For that is what the Lord needs from us, repentance. And then, O oh Lord, if we have sinned against someone else, by reconciliation with them. And then, Lord, O oh Lord, help us as a church to keep the marriage holy and sacred, upholding it, the purity and sanctity of it because it reflects to the watching world the relationship between God and His church, between Christ and His church so that the world may see the light of Jesus and be drawn to Him for the world, like us, 
needs desperately our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks, O Lord, for your mercy in our life, for your grace to us, O Lord. Praise be to you forever and ever. And let the people of God say, Amen. Amen.